White male, 5 feet 10 inches tall, 155 pounds, blue eyes, gray hair, and a beard. Excellent physical condition. Carrying a Royal Blue Outdoor Products Day Pack. Believed to have gone for a day hike from his campsite at White Wolf Campground, but he did not return. He had sent a text message to his son saying that he was on his way to the park. 52 years old at the time he went missing. White male, 5 feet 11 inches tall, 170 pounds, brown gray hair and brown eyes. Carrying a day pack, became separated from his companions during extreme heat conditions while starting a multi-day hike in a remote portion of the Western Grand Canyon. 22 years old when he went missing. White male, 6 feet tall, 175 pounds, blonde hair, and blue eyes. Last seen wearing a dark colored personal flotation device, a blue plaid long sleeve shirt, Chaco brand sandals, a maroon baseball cap, and brightly colored shorts, carrying a purple water bottle. 21 years old at the time he went missing. White male, 5 feet 8 inches tall, 140 pounds, brown hair, and blue eyes. Wears dark colored clothes and is known to wear a backwards baseball cap or dark colored bandana on his head. Drove a silver Mazda 6 sedan to the park. 51 years old at the time he went missing. After telling his family that he wanted to see the Spruce Treehouse Cliff Dwelling, he started hiking at approximately 4.30 p.m. The trail to the dwelling is less than a quarter mile long. He did not return from his hike. 24 years old at the time he went missing. 5 feet, 11 inches tall, 220 pounds, green eyes, brown hair, short beard. Last seen wearing black track pants, white tennis shoes. 49 years old at the time she went missing. White female, 5 feet, 5 inches tall, 140 pounds, brown hair, brown eyes. She is believed to have gone on a day hike from Yosemite Falls to the Forestra area based on witness observation. Her backpack was found in 2008 in the Fireplace Creek drainage, an area consistent with the hiking route from Yosemite Falls to Forestra. 42 years old at the time he went missing. White male, 5 feet 8 inches tall, green eyes, brown hair. Hiking with an Australian shepherd dog. He may have intended to collect elk antlers. 58 years old at the time she went missing. White female, 5 feet 10 inches tall, 180 pounds, brown eyes, red hair. Last seen hiking on the Deep Creek Trail. Her companions lost sight of her as she walked ahead at a faster pace. Each of those cases are listed on the official National Park Service website, mps.gov, on a page that is honestly pretty difficult to navigate to from the homepage. I decided not to include the actual names of the individuals, but if you search for cold cases and MPS in a search engine, you should be able to find it and read more about each of them. There are only a handful of cold cases listed on the site, and many date back decades. Most follow a very similar pattern. A reasonably healthy person with some experience in the outdoors walks into the woods, oftentimes with a small group, and then just vanishes. Several of the write-ups include details like the person only being away from hiking companions for a few minutes before never being seen again. They're eerie to read. But again, there are only a handful even listed, and some are more than 40 years old. The stories are so unsettling, not because of the facts we actually know, like the person's height, weight, when they were last seen, what they were wearing, and things like that. No, they're unsettling because of what we don't know. But there's still an even bigger question than just the question of what happened to these people. It's a question whose answer would at least tell us the scope of how big this mystery actually is. And it's a question we still don't know the answer to. How many people walk into federally managed wilderness and never come back out? I'm Jesse Carey. I'm a writer, a journalist, and a podcaster. 
And this is Hiding Something. Chapter 3, A Fork in the Road If you've listened to the first two episodes, then you know why this is such a critical question. If you haven't listened to them, I suggest starting there before listening to this one. That way this will make more sense. Just for a quick catch-up, former police detective and Bigfoot author David Polites alleges that despite his best efforts, the National Park Service refuses to tell him how many people mysteriously vanished in America's national parks. According to him, they've given him several different reasons for being so evasive. Yes, the National Park Services acknowledge that people do go missing in the parks, but what they won't tell us is more disturbing than what they will tell us, and that is just how many have actually vanished. In recent months, I've contacted officials at the National Park Service, but my interactions, to be honest, have gotten a little weird. So central to David Polite's narrative about something potentially sinister happening in America's national parks and federal land is that the National Park Service either doesn't know or is refusing to reveal how many people have gone missing on their watch, much less what could be causing these vanishings. According to Polites, at first, the National Park Service tried to hold up his Freedom of Information Act request on the basis that his books weren't widely available enough to constitute actual research. But that excuse doesn't really shake out. The Freedom of Information Act dates back to the late 60s and essentially requires that the federal government make certain information of public interest available if proper disclosure requests are made. When Polites says he pushed back, claiming that Freedom of Information Act requests aren't contingent on a book's distribution, he says that the Park Service told him they would create a database of missing people if Polites flipped the bill, a bill that he says they told him was well north of a million dollars. So, a few months ago, as I began research for this podcast, I reached out to the National Park Service's Office of Public Affairs. Here's part of what I wrote in my initial email. I'm working on a new podcast series that takes a look at the work of David Polites, the author of the Missing 411 books and the Missing 411 films. I know he's a controversial figure, and the show I'm working on takes a skeptical but hopefully fair-minded look at his books and films. He has made numerous claims about his inability to retrieve a database of individuals who've gone missing in national parks. According to him, he made a request to receive this kind of database, but was met with either resistance or was told that it would cost a very large sum of money. End quote. I close by explaining, would it be possible to have a brief phone interview with someone at the National Park Service? Or, if that's not possible, something that I could present as a response from the National Park Service? A few days later, I did receive a reply. They wanted to know more details about the podcast and some of my deadlines. I replied, and for the next three weeks, I would politely check in and see if a statement or interview would be possible. I received nothing back until I had sent five different emails checking in. Finally, I received an email that read, Apologies for the delay. I'm looking into this and we'll get back to you soon. The next day, the Office of Public Affairs reached back out and explained, Thanks for the opportunity, but we're going to decline to participate. All right, fair enough. Though, in the week since I sent the initial email, it seems like some kind of statement could be prepared, even if it was just a simple explanation of why creating such a database would be so laborsome. But instead, they simply declined to participate in any discussion of it. Next, I emailed an official at the Department of the Interior, the federal department that oversees the National Park Service. 
At first, I received a response that informed me that, quote, it appears that you are seeking to make a Freedom of Information Act request, but you sent your request via email rather than using one of the written forms of submission listed on the department's Freedom of Information Act website. But the thing is, I'm not seeking a Freedom of Information Act request. I'm just looking for them to comment on the claims that these requests either go unanswered or come along with some exorbitant price tag. But in the email signature, that email did include the email address of someone who worked in the Departmental Freedom of Information Act request office. I decided to reach out to her. She did reply, but she asked me to contact another Department of the Interior official and pass along another email address. Though that official initially responded to my request pretty quickly saying, let me connect with the National Park Service and get back to you, he too ghosted me and never replied after weeks of trying to have him get back to me like he said he would. Look. I recognize that, especially these days, some federal agencies are understaffed, and responding to a reporter wanting to do an interview about a guy who believes in Bigfoot is probably not high on the priority list. But the thing is, I wasn't asking them to comment on disappearances or cryptozoology. I wanted them to respond to a claim that a retired former law enforcement official who assists in high-profile search and rescue campaigns is unable to access a database of people who are missing in national parks. As Polites is fond of pointing out, The Park Service keeps track of complex sets of data about wildlife population and knows a lot about what's happening on the land they manage. If you went to their site right now, you could see how many, quote, bear incidences took place in Yosemite National Park from August 17th to the 22nd. It's 17 in case you're wondering. They know how many gray wolves lived in Yellowstone in 2007 when the population began to decline. It's 171. They know that in 2019, There were 327,516,619 recreational visits to America's national parks and 13,860,047 overnight stays. In fact, they have a chart on the site where you can look at recreational visits to the national parks every year dating back to 1904. It was 120,690 in case you're wondering. The point is, it would seem like if the National Park Service could undergo complicated tagging programs to track wildlife and is able to keep detailed records of visitors to the parks dating back more than 100 years, keeping track of active missing persons should be relatively easy. It's either that the National Park Service simply isn't tracking the number of people who go missing in their parks, which honestly seems either unlikely or irresponsible, or it's that they don't want the public to know that number. So if the National Park Service refuses to cooperate, and even substantiate or deny claims that a missing persons database doesn't exist. How can we possibly know how many people are missing? Well, that's where a man named John Billman comes in. Billman is a frequent contributor to Outside Magazine and is the author of the book, The Cold Vanish, Seeking the Missing in North America's Wildlands. If you like this podcast, then you seriously need to check out Billman's book. It's one of the best written on the topic. Billman got interested in the topic of people going missing in America's wilderness when he started reporting on missing hikers and cyclists. In 2017, after running into his own set of challenges with the National Park Service, he set out to find out how many people were actually missing in the 640 million acres that make up federal lands. That includes national parks, national forests, and Federal Bureau of Land Management property. But his research into the mystery seemed to point more towards government incompetence than a sinister cover-up. For years, the Fish and Wildlife Service objected to our march, saying the department-wide system did not meet the needs of Fish and Wildlife Service law enforcement. So Fish and Wildlife Service, or FWS, has refused to participate in our march, 
and is demanded to keep its legacy system called Lemus. The highest levels of DOI leadership have allowed this absolute impasse to go unresolved for years while continuing to request taxpayer funds and pump millions into the program. Now, IMARS has been only partially deployed and is still not fully functional. With the many years in development and millions of dollars poured into the program, we are left to conclude that this is government incompetence rivaled only by the rollout of the Obamacare website. This is government waste, fraud, and abuse to the extreme and has the potential to handcuff law enforcement and cause even deeper divisions that IMARS was supposed to solve. That's the voice of Louis Gomer, the U.S. representative from Texas who, as you may have guessed from his dig at the Obamacare website, is also a Republican. In 2016, while serving as the chairman of the Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigations, Gomer had a public hearing to figure out what exactly was going on with a program called IMARS, the Incident Management Analysis and Reporting System. It's a federal crime database that would potentially keep track of things like missing people in national parks. Officially, according to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, IMARS is meant to be, quote, a records management system designed to provide seamless sharing of law enforcement reporting information between all Department of the Interior law enforcement programs and to provide a consistent, reliable way to share information with partner agencies. It would be a solution for keeping track of missing persons cases in national parks. As you can tell from Gomer's tone, the project hasn't gone as planned. Following the hearing, the House Committee on Natural Resources issued a statement explaining that, quote, since 2003, the Department of the Interior has spent over $50 million in federal funds on a database that is not fully functional. They went on to explain, quote, the Department of the Interior began the process of implementing IMARS in the wake of the September 11th terrorist attacks. Over a decade later, the Department of the Interior has failed to adopt a functional law enforcement records management system that meets the needs of the department and its bureaus. For years, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has refused to implement IMARS, preferring its own legacy database, and has withheld funding from the IMARS program, end quote. Long story short, it's not that a database doesn't exist. It's just that it doesn't really work in any meaningful ways, despite tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer investment. Billman has spent years talking to search and rescue experts, the families of missing hikers, and even people like David Polites and a group of Bigfoot researchers at an organization called the Olympic Project, who also dedicate themselves to helping to find missing people. Using everything he could ascertain from news reports, available stats, and knowledge from insiders, Billman has arrived at a number, 1,600. That's 1,600 people who have gone missing in America's wild country. Though he believes that that is likely a conservative estimate, he believes that right now, there are at least that many people who have gone missing in America's wilderness. 1,600 is a devastatingly high number, but for people who have committed themselves to searching for the missing, it's honestly not all that surprising. It is estimated that approximately 40,000 unidentified human remains cases exist in the United States. These remains are often kept in the offices of medical examiners, coroners, or other allied professionals, but many are also buried or cremated. On any given day, 80 to 90,000 individuals are actively listed as missing persons with law enforcement. The sheer volume of missing and unidentified person cases in the United States poses a significant challenge to law enforcement, medical examiners, coroners, and family members searching to resolve these cases. The number of missing and unidentified person cases in the United States has been deemed our nation's silent mass disaster. 
That clip is from a PSA produced by the National Institute of Justice. Now, who is the NIJ? I'll let another PSA explain. The National Institute of Justice, NIJ, is the research, development, and evaluation agency of the United States Department of Justice. Dedicated to improving the knowledge and understanding of crime and justice issues, NIJ offers science-based knowledge and tools to inform decision-making by the justice leaders across the nation. We know that science can reduce crime and advance justice, and our research investments are strategically focused on the challenges facing practitioners in the field. We help test and develop solutions for your community. We find what works. From our first year in 1968, NIJ has granted funding across the spectrum of justice issues for law enforcement, forensics, victims advocacy, and more. Let's take a deeper look into what NIJ does. As you can probably tell from that weirdly upbeat YouTube video, the NIJ is the Research Development and Evaluation Agency of the U.S. Department of Justice. And despite the awkward tone of their introduction video, they take missing persons cases very seriously. In 2007, Nancy Ritter, a writer who works at the National Institute of Justice and the editor of the NIJ Journal, penned an essay about what she called the nation's silent mass disaster on NIJ.gov. Now, I'm going to read from that essay. If you ask most Americans about mass disaster, they're likely to think of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center, Hurricane Katrina, or the Southeast Asian tsunami. Very few people, including new law enforcement officials, would think of the number of missing persons and unidentified human remains in our nation as a crisis. It is, however, what experts call a mass disaster over time. The facts are sobering. On any given day, there are many as 100,000 active missing person cases in the United States. Every year, tens of thousands of people vanish under suspicious circumstances. Viewed over a 20-year period, the number of missing persons can be estimated in the hundreds of thousands. Due in part to the sheer volume, missing persons and unidentified human remains cases are a tremendous challenge to state and local law enforcement agencies. End quote. However, she goes on to explain why tracking the number of the missing is so difficult for them. That includes trying to maintain a large database. The NIJ has tried to build its own databases to help in the missing persons cases. But, as you can probably tell from the tone of Ritter's letter, that is a seriously large task, and one whose scope is much larger than the cases that happen just in national parks or federal land. But, this is the biggest, wealthiest government in history. If an official at the Department of Justice is willing to acknowledge that missing people are the quote, nation's silent mass disaster, you'd think they'd be able to create a database at some point. And we're not even talking about a national database here. Despite their detailed records on visits and overnight stays, the Park Service won't even tell us how many vanished people in the wilderness contribute to the silent mass disaster. There are only two conclusions you can draw from the dissidence that is apparent when you read about how many people go missing in America's wildlands and the government's hesitancy to talk about it. On one hand, if you've ever hunted or fished, you know how meticulously licensed tags and regulations are monitored. I mean, they know how many wolves are roaming the vast acres of Yosemite at any given moment. On the other hand, have you ever waited in line at the DMV? Let's let the nation's most famous fictional Park Service employee explain this avenue. I've been quite open about this around the office. I don't want this Parks Department to build any parks because I don't believe in government. I think that all government is a waste of taxpayer money. My dream is to have the park system privatized and run entirely for profit by corporations like Chuck E. Cheese. They have an impeccable business model. I would rather work for Chuck E. Cheese. 
That's Ron Swanson, who in the sitcom Parks and Rec ironically finishes the series as a superintendent for the National Park Service. However, Ron's libertarian idealism is rooted in the idea that the federal government is greedy and incapable of working efficiently. And look, when it comes to keeping track of park disappearances, his view has a point. Despite tens of millions of dollars, decades of work, and almost unlimited resources, because of their convoluted bureaucracy, it's been simply impossible to assemble a functioning database. On the other side of the coin, there's what Polites seems to suggest, that they know full and well what's happening, the staggering number of people who vanish, and the mysterious circumstances of their disappearances. But in order to protect their reputation and not lose funding and tourism dollars, they're actively covering something up so the public won't know. When you hear about the years of efforts and the millions of dollars spent trying to simply keep track of missing people, the Swanson side makes sense. But Polite's conspiracy exists for the same reason most conspiracies do. A lack of institutional transparency. I mean, how hard would it be to write a short statement reasonably explaining why they don't have a missing persons database instead of declining altogether? If large institutions are unwilling to be honest, the public will try to fill in the blanks. And because sensationalism is rampant in the digital era, the conclusions they draw will likely be the most compelling, even if they can get kind of weird. You can look no further than how fringe conspiracies like those perpetuated by a supposed secret government insider who goes by the name QAnon jump from controversial 4chan online message boards to actual presidential debates to see just how toxic the mix of conspiracies in the internet can be. But what if the Swanson side and the Polite side can both be true at the same time? What if they aren't competing theories about the National Park Service's unwillingness to talk about keeping track of widespread disappearances? There doesn't have to be a tension. Yes, maybe because of bureaucratic complexities, the Park Service doesn't keep track of missing people. And yes, maybe they would prefer that the public simply doesn't know what's going on. But if you read between the lines of Polite's books and films, he seems to believe that some sort of undiscovered creature is somehow responsible for missing people. But in some stories, there also seems to be a paranormal element. And that's where another tension exists. Laura Krantz is a fellow journalist who, having also worked on projects with the Smithsonian and NPR, also hosts and produces a podcast called Wild Thing. It's a really great show that takes a scientific look at topics like extraterrestrials and cryptozoology, as well as the communities fascinated with them. Seriously, it's an amazing podcast you should definitely listen. She's also related to the anthropologist Grover Krantz, himself a Bigfoot investigator. In season one of the series, which is about Bigfoot, she took a deep dive into the world of Bigfoot believers and noticed that there was a dividing line within their ranks. There was a pretty substantial and noticeable divide. On one hand, you had people like my cousin, like Grover, who were very much in the, this is just an undocumented primate living in the North American woods um, or in other parts of the U.S. It's been Bigfoot sightings all over. And then there was another camp that basically attributed all these supernatural kind of more magical elements to Bigfoot. Uh, I didn't really spend a lot of time talking to them because for me, that was just, that was a little too hard to make that jump. I felt that what the, the scientific side of things is where I could spend time and ask questions. My feeling on the, on the more woo side of things, which is how they referred to that, that, that more magical group is the woo that, you know, if you can use magic to explain lapses in rational behavior or scientific behavior, then, I mean, it just doesn't work for me. I, I, I just couldn't get with the math. I couldn't do the magical thinking. 
we can't use magic to explain other stuff. So if we're using magic to explain something that already we ha- are having trouble proving, that just, that doesn't add up. Look, Krantz isn't wrong. She makes a valid point. But if we're going to spend some time in the woo camp and understand why Pilates implies that the park service is covering something strange up, it's important to understand why these otherwise normal people would start to believe that strange national park disappearances have some sort of paranormal explanation. And that starts with people who've actually encountered things they can't explain. And when it comes to the unexplainable, there are a few common threads that are worth pulling on, like the concept of missing time. I want to tell you two stories that take place 40 years apart. Neither took place in a national park, but both happened in the wilderness during skiing adventures. In 1978, a 23-year-old college student named Stephen Kubacki went cross-country skiing on a cold February day near the campus of Hope College. These type of excursions weren't uncommon for Stephen, who loved the outdoors and had even traveled to Europe to go mountain climbing. Stephen had a bright future ahead of him, with a job at a newspaper already lined up and a family home that was about to be signed over to him. But Stephen never returned from his skiing trip. Within days of his disappearance, snowmobilers found his skis and backpack, but there was no sign of Stephen. That is, except for footprints. They led down a small trail, about 200 yards long, before just stopping suddenly near the edge of a frozen lake. For months, his family, police, and investigators searched for him. Though he wasn't officially declared dead, investigators proposed numerous theories, including that maybe he had fallen into the ice. They even thought he might have become the victim of a serial killer. However, a year passed, and there were still no more clues about what happened to Stephen, only footprints in the snow that mysteriously just stopped. Then, on May 5th, 1979, 14 months after he vanished in the wild, Stephen Kubacki woke up in a grassy field in Massachusetts, 700 miles from where he'd vanished. When he was eventually able to find a town in a newspaper, he was shocked to see what year it was. Eventually, he was reunited with his family, and told them that he had no recollection of the last 14 months. The only clues were what he woke up with, clothes that he couldn't recognize and a backpack filled with maps and signs for hitchhiking. He also had new glasses and a t-shirt that was apparently from a marathon that had taken place all the way in Wisconsin. To this day, no one knows what happened to Stephen those 14 months he was missing. Now I want to fast forward to 2018, 40 years to the month that Stephen had gone missing. 49-year-old Danny Philippitis was among several Toronto-based firefighters on a ski trip to upstate New York. At some point, Danny decided to go to his car to retrieve his phone, but it's believed he made a wrong turn somewhere on Whiteface Mountain and had gotten confused when he couldn't find his car. He never returned to his friends. The disappearance sparked a massive search. After all, this was a first responder who'd vanished. At least 135 volunteers and six different government agencies began to search for Danny. Six days later, something strange happened. Danny's wife received a phone call from a strange number. It was Danny. He was confused and not sure where he was or how he'd gotten there. It turns out he was in Sacramento, California, more than 3,000 miles away from where he vanished off the face of a mountain while skiing. Like Danny, he has no idea how he got there. Though he was still wearing his ski clothes, Danny had gotten a haircut and had somehow come into possession of a new iPhone. I'm still shocked. Like, I, I mean, I'm back to work. I feel great. But, you know, you forget about it for a few days, and then someone or something jogs your memory, and then you, you think back at it, and it's still, uh, 
still overwhelmingly like, shocking to like that it happened. Still, you know, I feel fortunate that I'm here, even just talking today because of all the potential things that I guess could have resulted. That's Danny in 2018 in an interview with City News Toronto. Now look, I'm not suggesting that these cases are connected to national park vanishings, but they are examples of missing people experiencing things that just seem impossible to explain. Even for Laura Krantz, who herself is skeptical about the existence of Bigfoot, acknowledges that when she hears some firsthand reports from people who say they've experienced things in the wild, it can be unsettling. I don't think anyone was making it up. I don't think that anyone was, that I t- at least no one I talked to, uh, I didn't feel like they were making anything up. And some of those stories were so weird and so bizarre that you are kind of like, what? What was it? There's a reason why the woo crowd thinks something strange is happening. They hear about strange happenings, and those strange happenings often lead to new divergent rabbit trails of investigating other weird happenings in an effort to see what's connected. No one wakes up one morning and decides to believe in monsters or time travel. They believe those things because they've heard or seen things that they can't explain, and they've seen trusted sources just be dismissive of them. Take, for instance, a minor scandal at National Public Radio in 2019. Look, NPR is an institution venerated for its dogged reporting. In remote eastern Oregon, a serial crime is unfolding. Someone is killing purebred bulls, and they're doing it with a level of cruel precision that unnerves ranchers and law enforcement. Northwest News Network's Anna King reports, and warning to listeners, this story includes descriptions of cattle mutilation. The story discusses ranchers in Oregon who discovered a group of purebred bulls that were found dead, drained entirely of blood. The reporter said they look like, and this is a quote from the NPR piece, a giant deflated plush toy. A local veterinarian said it wasn't the work of scavenger animals either. The image accompanying the story showed the skin of a cow laying flat on the ground like a blanket. Its insides, well, they seem to be surgically removed without a drop of blood. And it's not the first time something like this has happened. Back in the 1980s, one of this rancher's cows was mysteriously killed overnight. Anderson found her dead, her udder removed with something razor sharp. And not one drop of blood anywhere. When Anderson heard of these fresh cases, he called down to Sylvie's to let them know they weren't the only ones. Anderson says the killing is so weird and disturbing He's never gotten over it, even after all these years. It's just left a really strange feeling with me since that day. You can't explain it, and no one else has been able to explain it. The sheriff continues to investigate the killings, and Sylvie's ranch has put up a $25,000 reward for information that could solve the case. That clip was from the same NPR story. But... A few days later, NPR ran an opinion piece called Cattle Mystery, Some Readers Have Beef. In it, they responded to claims that NPR was, quote, motivated solely by the desire for clicks that the story ultimately produced. The story included a portion of a letter from a longtime listener who claimed, quote, this is the type of thing that even the National Enquirer would not waste its time on. To their critics, people like Pilates, who, by the way, occasionally raises concerns about mysterious cattle mutilations, should be outright dismissed. And maybe they have a point too. But institutions like the National Park Service or even NPR have either ignored their claims or backtracked on their own reporting. It's no wonder why some people assume conspiracies exist when in reality, there might not be one at all. And that's why I want to be fair to their side. I'm not trying to advocate for their ideas, but I do think there is genuine value in understanding why they believe what they do. And to do that, 
I have to listen. And one of the people I've talked to is Ron Moorhead. He's the guy who provided me with the strange clips of sounds from the last episode. He spent a lot of time at the small camp where he first encountered the sounds. One time one of the guys said he heard a herd of horses rushing down towards the shelter. Well, no, that wasn't happening. I mean, we're eight miles in the wilderness. It wasn't going on. And uh, one time I thought I heard a car door slam. <laughs> I say this to people. You know, no car can get up. You can't get a motorcycle up. I mean, this is a really remote, uh, imposing area. So stuff like that happened. Lights, orbs uh, was, was around following the guy sometimes. And just uh, anomalies that you couldn't explain with classical science. So they're coming into modern science, which is only about 100 years old. But so much uh, academia doesn't get into that. You know, they're trained within a parameters of discipline. And... Uh, they won't go out of that. Everything has to be measurable, predictable, physical, material, uh, but that's just not the case. That That's only in our three-dimensional environment. When you get out of that, you get into quantum science, and that's where it takes over from what you can't answer. So, what does he think is happening? Well, buckle up, because there's another strange turn in our story coming. That's next time on Hiding Something. Hiding Something is a production of the Ironclad Content Network. All episodes are written by me, Jesse Carey. Our editor and post-production producer is Chandler Strang. And hey, listen, if you like the show, be sure to leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcast. It really does help more people discover the show. All right, thanks, everyone. We'll see you next time.